Thank you, thank you. Well, good morning. Those of you that don't know me, my name is Rob. I'm Rob McElvoy. My wife, Kathy, right here. We've been at Citizens for a little over a year now. Um, for those of you who don't, you've been sharing a little bit what I do for a living. I work for an organization called Standing Stone Ministry. And my job title is I'm a shepherd. So what I actually do is I shepherd shepherds. That's what I do. My role is to come alongside pastors, missionaries, Christian workers, and just keep them encouraged, um, keep them sane, which is really pretty difficult during these times, as you can imagine. Um, I'm also a part-time marriage and family therapist at the Christian Counseling Center here in San Francisco as well. So, but we love our church. We absolutely love this church. We are so thankful uh, to be here. Uh, it's meant a lot to us to transition out of being a part of a church I hesitate to say this, out of a church of all boomers. <laughs> Avery will tell me every once in a while to be talking, it's just my boomers showing. Um, so I'm trying, I'm working on it. It's probably gonna come out today. So we're gonna continue in our uh, study in First Peter. So let me pray and we'll get started. Father God, I thank you so much for this time. We thank you that your word is living and it's active and it's, it's powerful, and God, we are thankful that it teaches us, instructs us, encourages us, helps us to know more about you, to understand our God that loves us so much, how to live our lives in such a way that is pleasing to you, and in a sense where we really feel like we're living how you want us to live, and that fulfillment that comes from living as your obedient children. So God, as we look at your word today, God, I pray for myself. I pray that you would teach me, even in the midst of this time, that the words of my mouth, God, would come from your spirit. So we, we invite you, God, to teach us today in Christ's name, amen. Well, as many, of, as many of you do know, my wife, Kathy, is a freelance writer. And what she does most often is she writes people's, she ghost writes for people and writes their memoirs. Um, as you can imagine, most people that write their memoir aren't writing it because their life was rosy and a piece of cake. So she encounters a lot of different uh, things that people have gone through. A recent client of hers is actually writing a book about her son's journey after sustaining a traumatic brain injury. Her son Seth was 17 years old when he was hit by a car while he was riding his bike. How old is Seth now? 29. 29. Um, so, so this was a really traumatic injury that he had. After his initial surgery, his mom makes it, which told in a really rather blunt way that if he makes it, if he makes it, which wasn't likely, he would never walk, he would never talk, he wouldn't know who he was or his family members were, he wouldn't understand humor. Basically, he would be in a vegetative state for the remainder of his life. Picture getting that kind of news. Your 17-year-old son is going to be in a vegetative state the rest of his life. Here's what this woman says as she recounts the moment that she was given this news. She says, your oxygen in a hospital is hope. All hope had been sucked out of me at this point, and I was left to suffocate. But then this nurse entered my space and did CPR on me with her words. She said, 
I know what the doctor told you, and I know how hard this is and how impossible it looks, but I can tell you what I've seen. Not medically or statistically, what doctors will tell you, but I've seen things. She proceeded to tell me of miracles she witnessed and impatience she had encountered. God knew I was starving for hope, so he sent this nurse to me. In that brief conversation, she provided me with a crumb of hope that seemed like a banquet. Ever been in that kind of situation? Maybe not this extreme, but just a crumb of hope would just be phenomenal. Hope is a powerful, powerful thing. It's a powerful weapon against the weight of discouragement that often develops when we experience suffering. And this is precisely what the readers of Apostle, Paul, Apostle Peter's heard were in need of. They were in need of hope. They were in need of encouragement. If you remember, Peter was writing to believers who were suffering severely due specifically to their obedience to Christ. That is why they were suffering. As Dave has explained, many of them were literally cast out from their homeland. They were rejected by their families, their cultures, their cities. They were forced to the margins because of their faith. They were despised and rejected by nearly everyone around them. I can't even fathom what that would be like. Because of their faith, that's how rejected they were. Now, we can only imagine how they must have at times struggled. Could you imagine how hard it would have been? We think, oh, these early Christians, they were all so strong, they probably never doubted their faith because Jesus had, wasn't that long ago. That they were suffering, so they really knew what they believed. But I can't imagine that there were some that were struggling with their faith in the midst of such adversity, wondering if living lives of obedience to Jesus was really worth it. Is this worth it? Is this suffering worth it? Now, the reality is you and I will likely never experience even close to the suffering for being obedient followers of Jesus as these early believers did. Yet even so, although our circumstances are very, very different, that doesn't mean that we won't suffer as we strive to live in obedience to Christ, especially within a culture that doesn't get our values or doesn't share the same values that we have. Many times in Scripture, we are told or even promised that we will suffer for our obedience to Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In Philippians, he goes on to write this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but you should also suffer for his sake. Peter goes on and even teaches that the genuineness of our faith is actually proven over time through suffering. This is, what, this is what we talked about last week. This is what Dave was talking about. It's proven over time as we suffer. So what would characterize, though, suffering for walking in obedience? What would that look like today? Dave talked a little bit about that last week, but what would it look like today because I love what he said about last week. He described it as obedience, which hurts. 
Obedience which hurts or obedience that comes with a cost. And you describe all sorts of different ways that that could come about. Really, it's obedience in Christ that hurts or costs us something. And you talked about how it can cost us something socially, financially, relationally, culturally, all so many ways that obedience might impact our lives. It's the kind of suffering where we do something or we stand for something in such a way that not only glorifies God, but it testifies to the world that the way of Jesus is better, that the way of Jesus is good, that the way of Jesus is right. That's the kind of suffering he's talking about. Now, I think most of us would admit that the idea of suffering for being obedient isn't exactly the number one motivation for wanting to be obedient, right? That's probably not our number one thing we think about. We want to be obedient because I know I do. I want to be obedient because I'm grateful for who God is and what he's done in my life. Of course, I want to obey him. He loves me. I want to obey him. But so I can suffer? Is that why I want to obey not so much. That's not my, usually my motivation. God, I love you. You're so good. I am going to obey you. I, I just can't wait to suffer for this, though. That's going to be awesome. We don't think like that. So how do, how do we move on? How do we figure out how to live this? The reality is it's actually out of God's love and desire for us to be more like his son, that he allows opportunities for us to suffer for our obedience to him. He allows it. I love what Elizabeth Elliot said, how she puts it. She says, our vision is so limited. We can hardly imagine a love that does not show itself in protection from suffering. The love of God did not protect his own son. He will not necessarily protect us. Not from anything it takes to make us like his son. A lot of hammering and chiseling and purifying by fire will have to go into the process. So, if suffering is an inevitable part of the process of becoming more like Christ, I think we need to talk about what is it then that can motivate us to press into being obedient in every area of our lives even when it hurts, even when it costs us something, even when our flesh and the culture that we live in urges us, even begs us oftentimes to either give in or just to completely give up. Here's what I think it's about. Hope. It's about hope. And I'm not talking about the kind of hope that, is an, that there's an element of uncertainty like it. Like, I hope the weather warms up a little bit more because it's been really cold. Or when I was at Disneyland this week with my grandkids, oh, I could sort of preach a sermon on that. But <laughs> how I was hoping that the weather on the phone was not going to be the weather at Disneyland where it said it was going to be 85 degrees. It stayed 85, just so you know. <laughs> it did. I'm not talking about that kind of, it's a, it's a hope that the Bible describes as an expectancy and confidence that what we hope for will happen. 
Let me say that again. It's, it's this hope, it's this, this expectancy that what we hope for will happen. We're confident, we expect it. I know that it's going to happen. That our greatest longings will ultimately be fulfilled. My deepest, deepest inner longings, they will be fulfilled. I can put my hope in that. And that's precisely the kind of hope that Peter gives to his readers and to us in this letter. So let's, let's dive in. Let's pick up where we left off. We're um, on chapter 1, verse 13. Actually, we didn't leave off there because we haven't gotten a little few verses before that, but I'm sure we'll hit that. So let's look at verse 13. It says this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Am I popping in? Am I coming in and out? I hate handheld, but I'll do it. No, I'll do it. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I just feel like I'm like on American Idol or something, which I would never do. So, so, so Peter, in this in this instant right here, he starts off by saying, "Therefore." So what he's doing here is Peter wants to bring to their attention to what he has just told them in the previous verses that is absolutely fundamental to what he's going to say now. Everything that he just got done saying in those 12 verses has to do now. You have to hear that because this. He wants them to know that everything about them is dependent on their understanding of their new and their true identity in Christ. Everything. Because it's one thing for us to read the Bible and to see things and go, yeah, I want to be like that, or I should be like that, or we try to be this, and we're going to look at that in a minute, how, we're, how he asks us to live. But oftentimes we do it in ways without realizing there is a foundational step that has to happen before we even attempt to be obedient, even attempt to live a Christian life. And the number one thing is we have to be able to grasp and understand where our identity comes from. We have to. I believe this is a major reason so many people are leaving the faith. So many people are leaving the church, leaving Christianity so often. It's because they've heard the do's, they've heard the don'ts. But we haven't been discipled into understanding who am I? Who's my true, where does my true identity lie? Who am I really? In Christ, who am I? Which is truthfully, I don't care how much you've heard about it, is a lifelong exploration of learning what it means, who I am in Christ. You see, Peter knows that how they and we view our identity in Christ will ultimately determine how he view our sufferings due to being obedient. And he knows also that it'll have everything to do with how we go about practically living out our lives to be obedient in a world that doesn't share our values. It all gets back to the foundation of our identity in Christ. And you remember, that's what, that, that's what he's been doing. And, and we've, Dave talked about it last week. We've talked about it a couple times before. I'm just going to kind of hit the kind of things that he told them because he wanted to remind them. And this is just a small list that he just reminds these folks 
about who they are. So he starts off by addressing them as elect exiles, as those who have been specifically chosen by God according to his plan and purpose. He specifically chose them, and they are strangers, and they are aliens. Let me ask you, you ever feel like a stranger and an alien as a follower of Jesus in San Francisco? Yes, we do. He then reminds them that they've been born again, or that they have a new birth, a spiritual rebirth that no one can achieve on their own, something that can't be earned. It's a gift by God's mercy. This is who you are, he's telling them. This is who you are. He goes on to say that they've been born, born again into a living hope. This living hope that as followers of Jesus, they are able to view their present circumstances in the light of hope that is certain because their hope isn't in their circumstances changing, but in a person who rose from the dead and is live in them. Side note here. There's someone in my... There's a situation we have going on in my family, but I see this all over a lot of times in different people where we're hoping that a certain situation will change. And there's nothing wrong with that. Whether it's an illness, uh, a relationship, whatever it is, a hope that things will change. I think energy and our effort and our hope towards, and I'm probably you are too, there's a lot of times, our focus and our energy and our effort and our hope is in that will change, right? My hope is that, and we even hear, and the Bible even talks some, sometimes about that, but we're overcomers. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, yes. But the idea of what Peter is trying to tell people here is he's trying to let them know that you have a living hope. Your hope is in Christ. Your hope is who you are in Jesus, not that circumstance changing. So how do we communicate to one another then, wow, what you're going through is so hard, I'm so sorry, that's so difficult. But let's talk about how maybe we can talk about and pray about letting Jesus enter into your situation and walk with you and see what he does in the midst of it, of something that might not ever change. But you can still find incredible hope in that eternal, it's guaranteed. He tells them they have a very special inheritance, one that their inheritance of eternal life and all that comes with that, nothing's going to change that, nothing. But they have a living hope for this life that extends into eternity. He goes on to acknowledge that even as they're rejoicing, this is, this is kind of what Dave talked about last week, even as they're rejoicing in this hope, they will experience trials. Trials are going to come because they're necessary and to, uh, to attain genuine faith. And lastly, which is verses we haven't covered yet, we skipped over areas, he talks them and tells them that they have the privilege as followers of Jesus of experiencing, knowing and experiencing things concerning Jesus and his suffering and his resurrection that the prophets of old and the angels in heaven longed to know about. They longed to understand this whole thing. What was going on with Jesus? They know. So all that. So Peter's saying because of all these things that are true about who you are, about your identity as followers, what he's telling them is you are more than able to live your lives in such a way that reflects these truths. 
Because this is true about you, it's not just because it's true about you, about uh, the certain gifts you have or the talents you have. No, what is true about your identity as a follower of Christ, your identity as an indwelt spiritual being that has Jesus living within you, something powerful now can happen. You can live out that, you can live out your life in such a way that shows that, oh, yes, this is true. You can live that out. That's why this letter is so important for us today. In order to live life of complete obedience in Christ, we need to first understand that our hope, our confident expectation and desire for good things to happen in the future in the midst of suffering can be found where our true identity lies. And it's from that reality now that Peter now moves into explaining. Okay, we've covered one word. Okay? <laughs> Sit back. Let me look at, that, look at that verse again. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said, since all that's true about you, Here's what you need to do. Here's how you live that out. And Peter goes on just to give two, okay? It's a two-point sermon today, so easy peasy, okay? Two, he gives two commands or two imperatives, okay? First one here is found in this verse. Basically what he tells them is he tells them to set their minds on future grace. Set their minds on future grace. So set their minds on grace, he says, that will be revealed when Christ returns. What is that? What is grace that will be revealed when Christ returns? Well, first, I think it's important, before we go into that, that we make sure that all of us here, we really understand what grace really is. And I just want to briefly hit on this. Grace is, really, it's an essential part of God's character, okay? It's related to his compassion, his love, and his mercy. Grace can be defined this way. It can be defined as God's favor towards the unworthy or God's compassion on the undeserving. You see, in his grace, God is willing to forgive us and to bless us abundantly in spite of the fact that we don't deserve to be treated so well. We just don't. We don't deserve to be treated so, with such generosity. The Apostle Paul writes in first Ephesians 1, I love this, kind of talking about, I really believe this is a great, unhelping to understand what grace is. It says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his holy family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. That is grace. I love it. He, before the foundation of the world, Christ chose you to be holy and without fault. What? That's that incredible generosity and that forgiveness. And I love it. In the New Living Translation, I love that. That is what he wanted to do, not because he had to, because that's what God does. Why did he do it? Because it gave him great pleasure. 
I hope that you're able to at times when you are struggling with your faith, especially or just struggling in general or struggling with who you are, that you can remind yourself again and again that God takes great pleasure in you. But Rob, you don't know my doubts. You don't know my fears. You don't know how I've blown it. Yeah, you just don't know. God delights in you. Because if you don't believe that, you're not believing in grace. I know it's hard, isn't it? Everything in me wants to accuse myself, look down on myself. But when I'm reminded of God's grace, I don't get all haughty and all that. It makes me go, oh, it's kind of like a, one of my favorite things at Disneyland with my grandkids. I'll probably have a lot of illustrations. Here we go. It's not even in my notes, so it's going to come out. Um, was the fact that my two older grandsons, who's four and seven, they wanted to ride every ride with me. And I loved how they would come and they would just put themselves right in there with me. And be in line with me, grabbing my leg, jumping about it. Oh, oh, I can't wait to go on this ride with you. Just, I just, I mean, all the time. The whole thing. Oh, but look at this. Oh, but I want to do that with you. Oh, you know why? They know I love them. And I'm also grandfather. But they know, they know that I love them. They know that I am pleased with them no matter what they do. In their simple child's mind, they know. I adore them. Even when they act like little boogers. I adore them. And that's nothing, nothing compared to how God views us. Not even close. So that's what grace is here. And that's where our ultimate hope is found. I want you to hear this. Hope is actually the ultimate response to God's goodness and grace. Hope is the ultimate response to God's goodness and grace. I don't have to hope that I get better. I don't have to hope that I do things right. I hope that God, I, my hope is in the fact that God loves me unconditionally, no matter what. We can't hear that enough. Yet Peter tells his readers that in order to fully grasp this, that they must have a certain mindset. They're, he says that they are to prepare their minds for action and to be sober. So this this phrase where he says preparing your minds, it literally means, translated means to gird up your loins, to the loins of your mind. What, the best thing to do is picture um, like a first century person tucking their robe into their belt so that they won't trip on it because they got to go do something. I, I got I to gotta get active here. I got to move. So they're getting all the hindrances out of the way, okay? It's like our modern day rolling up our sleeves, okay? Get everything, get everything out of the way. To be sober-minded is the idea of keeping a clear mind with, a, with rational and sharp thinking. So together, what he's telling them is to do is prepare their minds for being sober and over, having the overall idea, idea of being absolutely ready with no mental impairment and thinking clearly and understanding what grace means. So if you're having a hard time with knowing, understanding grace and receiving God's grace, I want to encourage you this morning that would be a fantastic area for you to press into God, asking him 
to show you, to help you to understand, because you need his help to understand grace. Because frankly, we can't understand grace. It's crazy. It's nuts. So I encourage you to invite God on a regular basis. I don't one time think constantly, help me, God, to understand your grace. Help me to receive your grace constantly. That's a great practice to have. So it's with this mindset that Peter's telling his readers to set their hope, not on their present circumstances, but fully on the grace that it will come to them at the revelation of Christ. Again, okay, what's that? We see what grace is now. We get that. But what's this grace to come at the revelation of Christ? Well, in my kind of under, my limited understanding, what I, I believe Peter's getting at here is an idea that grace is kind of fluid. Although now, Jesus Christ, we experience God's tremendously generous grace now. The truth is, this is just a minuscule drop compared to what's to come. So it's almost like saying, let's put grace of what we understand on a trajectory that goes, I can't even imagine what that'll look like. But if it's going to be better than it, if it's going to be tremendously better than it is now, <laughs> what? I can, put some, I can put some hope in that. John Piper writes this. He said, future grace is the grace we'll receive at the second coming and the grace that is arriving every moment as I move into the future. Future grace is God's power, provision, mercy, wisdom, everything we need in order to do what he wants us to do. That's to do five minutes, five weeks, five months, five years, 5,000 years from now. This is where we find our hope to live obediently in a world that frankly we don't belong. Remember, exiles, foreigners, that's who we are. Where we're literally foreigners. Where suffering for the obedience to Christ is really a constant reminder that this is not how things were intended to be. This is not how God intended it to be. So, and we know, but though, it's not going to be this way forever. That's the beauty. It's not going to be this way forever. We may never suffer the persecution that Peter's original readers did, but we live in a culture that in so many ways distracts us from living an obedient life to Christ, doesn't it? Our culture, I don't know about you, but I don't see much on TV Movies, Netflix, things like that, that encourages me to live an obedient life to Christ. If anything, not that what I see in those areas tells me turn away from Christ, but what it tells me to do oftentimes is let's take a little step away. A little compromise. A little bit of something to make me feel happy because I'm not happy. That's what the world does. That's what the culture we live in does. So hope is seeing our present lives and circumstances through the lens of not only what we have in Christ now, but what is in store for us. I love what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8. He says this, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to be revealed to us. Okay, I need to stop here because if you're like me, this idea of placing our, our hope in what's to come is, is, it really stretches our thinking, doesn't it? 
As a matter of fact, thanks, Dave, I preached on this exact same thing last time I preached. It was the same. <laughs> it's the same idea. I preached out of Romans the idea that, I think it was the Romans 8 that's coming up here. It's Because um, it's all over, because it's really, it's all over the New Testament. As I was studying this, I was realizing this is a concept I am derelict in. I don't, under, I don't get it. I don't lean into it. But it's all over the New Testament. The idea of putting hope in something that's in the future. The idea of putting something in the future glory, the future grace, the future power, everything to put it in the future. I didn't grow up in a church. I grew up in church. I didn't grow up. I grew up hearing those words, but not that being an emphasis on how I live my life now and what's the impact of that on my life now. But it's in numerous places. Like I said, Romans, I believe this is what I preached on. Now, in Romans 8, it said, Now hope that is, that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, talking about what's coming, we wait for it with patience. It has an impact on how we deal with suffering now, what's coming. Philippians 3, our citizenship, where we belong, is in heaven. And from it, what do we do? We wait. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Something's coming. Second Corinthians, for these light and momentary afflictions is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are, I think scenes are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. One more, John 3, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Are you hearing a theme here? I got to tell you, I've been so challenged as I've, as I've been preparing for this and studies because I still don't fully get it. And like I said last time I preached on this whole idea, I think it's a whole idea of being able to be comfortable with mystery. The mystery of things that we can't, just because we can't say, oh, I get it, we're not going to say, okay, I'm not going to think about that or I'm not going to focus on that. Instead, say, this is a tremendous mystery that's not just mentioned once in Scripture, it's all over the Bible, and in the Old Testament as well. It's all over the Bible, finding hope in what's to come. May we be people that continually seek and be willing to grasp and embrace mystery. Because this is a concept that is in the Bible for us. And it's here to bring us hope. I want to encourage you Maybe even try that this week. When you're tempted to be discouraged about how your attempts to live in obedience are coming at a cost to you or to those you love, try to do something, and I've been trying to do this, to intentionally flipping that switch in my mind and beginning to focus on future grace. And here's how I feel like the only way that I'm starting to understand this is to, to focus on God's generous grace towards me now and then just put my hope in that knowing that he has promised that what is coming is way better. 
and even more. So it's like putting myself, anytime I've ever gotten something and I thought it was going to be this good, but it turned out to be that good, like finding my wife, mm -hmm. it thought it be that good, but it's that good. <laughs> Anything, because that's, our minds just don't think like that. So I'm sorry I can't give you a formula or myself a formula how to do this. I'm just saying that scripture is telling us to find our hope in our future grace. So we need to do that. We need to ask the Lord, help me to understand that. Let's talk to each other about how to do that. All right, let me keep, let me keep going. So that's the, first, that's the first one. First imperative or command Peter gives for practically living in obedience to Christ due to our new and true identity is to set our minds on future grace. Second one is in uh, the second uh, commander imperative in verses 14 or 16. This is much shorter. He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He starts by telling them that the, he, the second grant is to be holy in the way that you live your life. That's just, this is what he's telling them. Be holy in the way you live your life. Which is ironic, he's saying that because that's the very reason they're being persecuted. Like, someone must have looked at it and said, what? Like, this is why we're hurting. He's saying, live in a way that is holy. He starts by telling the reason for being holy is out of their obedience. First and foremost, as obedient children. Remember, we can't earn God's favor, but as his children, we can bring him pleasure through our obedience. And as obedient children, he had... Peter admonishes them to don't conform or literally don't live out or embrace the passions that you were drawn to prior to coming to Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul gives a list of some of these things that constitute passions of ignorance. See if you can relate to any of these. This list includes things hardness of heart, no sense of shame, living for lustful pleasure, lying, out of control anger, stealing, Unhelpful, foul, and abusive language. Bitterness. Now, these are just kind of the bigger ones. He says, don't live like that. Instead, don't embrace those. Live holy lives. Now, here's the thing. So if you grew up in church, especially if you grew up in a sense where there was a lot of do's and don'ts and rules, this can be really hard. Because people often associate being holy with being perfect or being close to it. To it. Yet the reality is holiness as described in the Bible refers to the idea of separateness or being set apart for honorable use. That's what holy is. It's like what Peter, like Peter says in the second book. I like Eugene Peterson's version of this in 2 Peter 2.9. He says, but you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him, to tell others of the night and day difference he made for you from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. That's what he's chosen us for. That's what being holy means, and it doesn't mean doing that perfectly. You see, the Christian life isn't about cultivating, a, it is about cultivating a life of holiness, yet that doesn't mean that we're supposed to come up with a list of do's and don'ts. That's not what holiness is. 
Make sure you're doing these things. Make sure you're not doing these things. And we're good. That's not it at all. The effort, yes, effort is required on our part. But ultimately, being holy is about relying and trusting on God, on the power of God's grace. I love what D.A. Carson says here. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We just drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. The holy life that Peter is telling us that we are to live is ultimately the work. It's relying on God's grace in our life. Are we going to do exactly what he just described there? It's your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, what's happening in this verse is we see a cooperation between God and us playing out in our holiness. It's a both and thing. As one person I read puts it, he said, we work out what God works in. We work out what God works in. What that tells me is we're simply to be obedient as the Spirit of God speaks to us and the truth of the gospel is spoken to us and we hear it, we do it. Because we want to be obedient to God. We love him, we cherish him, but he's asking, that's what obedient children do. Because we know he's got the best for us. And on top of that, his grace is just monstrous. So I want to live that way. There's a cooperation. The Christian life is not about becoming more and more perfect, but rather more and more dependent upon God's grace in order to become like Jesus. Let's read that. I'm going to read that again. The Christian life is not about becoming more and more perfect, but rather more and more dependent on grace in order to become more like Jesus. You see, Peter is wanting his readers and us to recognize that the hope that we have is found, that's found in our new and true identity in Christ is what provides motivation to live obediently for Christ, especially when it hurts, when it costs us something. And he tells us in order to do this, Peter says, we need to set our hope fully on future grace that we not only experience now, but will reveal to when Jesus returns. And by living a life of holiness as obedient children, trusting in God's grace to conform our thinking and behavior to his character. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you again for your word and how powerful and wonderful it is. We thank you, God, for the, the action that we've been called to is to lean into this future grace, a grace that we are experiencing so abundantly right now, but that is amazing for the future. God, I want that. I want to live my life leaning into that, especially as I learn to obey you and be obedient to you, God.
Help us, God, to live holy lives out of obedience, out of your grace, out of your goodness, so we can show the world that Jesus is good, Jesus is right and wonderful.